Welcome to the Common Good Show with Juanita Farrow, a show where we inspire and empower you to reach your fullest potential. I believe we're all called to a higher purpose and that we are all connected. We should promote acts of love and community for the common good of humanity. Once again, you're listening to the Common Good Show, and I am Juanita Farrow. And boy, do I have an exciting show for you today. Today I am speaking to Rick Jackson. And uh, Rick is going to be talking to us about healthy communities, aging, and lifelong health. Something we have to think about is, you know, as we start to age, what are the things that we should be thinking about and, and how do we uh, deal with the aging in our society because we're all getting older. And so he's going to give us some good information about that. Now, Rick is someone I know. He's a friend, and he's from the, the Williamsburg, Virginia area is where he is, which is the, the area that I'm from. And since 2009, he served as the executive director of the Riverside Center for Excellence in Aging and Lifelong Health. And just recently, um, in June 2016, Rick was appointed by the governor, Terry McAuliffe, to the Alzheimer's Disease and Related Disorder Commission to a four-year term beginning July 2016. And so we are certainly excited about that opportunity for him. And congratulations, Rick, and welcome to the show. Juanita, thank you. It is my pleasure and honor to be here. And I would echo not only are we friends, but you also served on a board for our organization a number of years ago, and that's how I first got to know you and to come to know you so well. Yes, thank you for that. Yes, I was on the board uh, for several years, and it was such a wonderful experience being on the board. And I learned so much, which is why I'm so passionate about others to know more about how we can age gracefully and how we can promote aging and lifelong health, because it was certainly a learning experience for me as well. So now, Rick, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? I know you've got an extensive background. So can you talk a little bit more about some of the things that you've been involved in and what you've done? Well, I've been involved in managing and doing community relations for organizations that serve older adults and their caregivers for the past 25 years. Mm. Some of those organizations I've overseen were hospital-based programs that served older adults for treating them for depression and anxiety. Uh, some of those programs I oversaw uh, were community-based mm -hmm. programs like public mental health agencies like the Hampton Newport News Community Services Board, for example. And I've also, like you, I needed taken advantage of the opportunity to set on various boards, whether mm -hmm. it's a local agency on aging or Catholic charities, um, any kind of agency that, you know, is serving older adults. I, I've seen the uh, common ground and, and the residents and wanted to, to serve. Um, mm -hmm. I've been here at the center since 19, uh, since uh 2009, mm -hmm. and uh, have seen significant growth here in, in the size of the agency and the tasks that we're involved in and, and the, all those things that we ought to be doing. Wow. And, and I think there are probably some out there right now who are saying, why should we be so concerned about 
aging in America? I mean, do we have? I mean, is that an issue? I mean, what is going on in, in our in our country that should that we should be paying attention to? Well, it, as you can imagine, it's our mantra. It's what we speak of on a daily basis. You know, here in the United States, we're we're in the midst of a very significant change in the demographic profile of our country. Some people wow. call it a silver tsunami. I prefer to call it an age wave. But wow. basically, basically, uh, the demographic profile looks like this. Today, about 13% of us, or 32 million of us, are 65 and older. By the year 2030, that number is going to double. So 25% of us, or 70 million Americans, will be 65 and older. And then I'm a baby boomer. <clears throat> By the as time well all the baby boomers, as well as you. <laughs> yeah. By the time all we baby boomers are 65 and older, Juanita, there'll be 80, more than 80 million Americans, 65 and older, compared to wow. a population that's only, uh, you know, 320 million. So, you know, the founders mm-hmm. of our organization, of of whom you were one, mm-hmm. you know, looked at this age wave, and they said, by any way you would measure this, you would see that we as a society simply aren't ready, Um, Mm -hmm. especially as it relates to the provision of health care. You know, Medicare created in the mid-60s in the Johnson administration um, didn't really imagine this kind of age wave and didn't really foresee uh, the kind of numbers I I just tossed out. So there's significant strains on how we're going to provide health care for older adults as we move forward. And people are just living longer because of innovations and technology and health care. We're seeing that, you know, the life expectancy has increased. It really has. Just to make that point, you know, mm-hmm. at the turn of the 19th century, in the early 1900s, the average lifespan in the United States was in the mid-40s. Whoa. Uh, by the middle of the 20th century, we'd moved into the mid-60s as a as a expected lifespan. Today, uh, a woman in the United States can expect to live into her early 80s and men into their late 70s. So absolutely, uh, technology and advances in how we provide health care has, has greatly extended our, our life expectancy. Wow. Now, you, you mentioned that we don't have the infrastructure. We haven't really invested in the infrastructure and the resources necessary to accommodate such an aging population. Can, can you speak to that? I mean, because someone out there may not really understand what that means and what that looks like. Well, it, it, it means a number of things. It certainly means uh, how are we going to provide health care for older mm-hmm. adults and their caregivers. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a traditional way of paying for health care, which is fee-for-service, fee-for-procedure, will there be enough dollars in the Medicare dollars? Will there be mm-hmm. enough dollars in, right. in uh, private sector insurance to pay for those services? And the answer is no. We really have to rethink um, not only how we provide health care services, but how we measure them, how we pay mm-hmm. for them. And I will tell you that we're in the midst of a sea change uh, the best way to describe it is that we're moving from an, from a situation where you walk into a doctor's office and he bills you for seeing you for that visit, and that's called mm-hmm. a fee for a service. 
Mm-hmm. Or if you go into a hospital, they bill you for the procedure. They replaced your knee or they've treated you for a heart attack. So we're moving away from that to where physicians and hospitals will be paid for outcomes, for mm-hmm. value, for quality. And it's, a, it's an, an extremely exciting change, but it's a frightening change for everyone, not mm-hmm. just the patients, but the doctors, hospitals, the insurance companies. We're all uh, in the midst of this change and it's a change that we have to go through. But to mm-hmm. your point, Juanita, it isn't just health care. It's housing. It's transportation. Mm-hmm. It's recreational opportunities. It's, you know, all the other things out there that will serve us as we age. So all of that has to be looked at through different lenses. Wow, this is so exciting. And we're now, um, you know, we're on the verge, and this is happening. And communities are not prepared. So we're going to talk more and dig deeper into some of these issues because we want to discuss them further. But we're going to take a short break now. You've been listening to The Common Gift Show with Juanita Farrell, and I've been talking to Rick Jackson on healthy communities, aging, and lifelong health. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Common Good Show with Juanita Farrell, and I'm talking to Rick Jackson, and we're talking about healthy communities, aging, and lifelong health. And Rick just gave us some really incredible statistics on the aging in our society and how we just don't have the the infrastructure and the resources to really accommodate the numbers um, that we're going to be faced with very soon. So I want to ask you, Rick, um, as an executive director of this or your organization that was really created to support the aging population, can you talk, I know you said that there's been a tremendous growth and, and, and expansion in some of the things that you've done, but can you talk more specifically about some of the things that you've done to support the aging population? Sure, Juanita, and thanks for asking. You know, the founders of our agency saw this age wave and their vision was that we ought to be involved in applied academic health services research through academic partners to include the College of William & Mary, Eastern Virginia Medical School, Virginia Commonwealth, and also Riverside Health System so that we can equip and better enable physicians, nurses, psychologists, everyone who's providing health care to older adults and their caregivers, better skills, more mm-hmm. um, current and accurate information, uh, different ways to look at programs and services so that we would be ready for that. So we've been conducting uh, this research now for our entire history, which is 14 years. We've been in existence for 14 years. But the founders also said that we ought to be involved in looking at what are the gaps in the ways that we provide care for older adults? What What are the obvious things that are missing, and shouldn't we be involved in providing those and showing that they can be sustainable over time? So we also then provide specialized services for older adults. We have a geriatric assessment clinic here, and in the geriatric assessment clinic, we're looking at older adults who are exhibiting for the first time in their lives memory issues. Mm -hmm. And when these memory issues come into everyone's awareness, then the question becomes safety. How do we have these individuals remain safe in the community and treat them with dignity that they deserve and respect? So we we do that as well as looking at driving safety. So we evaluate older adults for driving. 
So the founders said, you know, you should be doing uh, health services research, but you should also be providing services that older adults can't find. And Juanita, their other vision was, to the extent you do this well, and I believe we have, you in fact create a model community. So to your point, for your listeners, mm-hmm. as across the country we consider what communities ought to look like who care for older adults and their caregivers, we want to say that we are a community who can be observed and learned from because we've gone down this road and we've been successful at it. So that really was the vision behind the creation of the agency and how we've conducted ourselves over these years. That is awesome. And because of our demographics, it made perfect sense, correct? It did. It did. You know, 14 years ago, not everyone saw this, but certain uh, individuals did. And being the visionary, compassionate people that they are, they said, "We, we need to get ready. And so are we ready? No, absolutely not. But are we moving in the right direction? I would say yes, we are, because we're not the only uh, agency like ours, the only program like ours in the country. There are many others doing what it is we're doing and more than willing to share that information. And so I know that there are many communities out there right now who really, I mean, communities that really have not started to prepare for you know, what you refer to as the silver tsunami or the age wave, you call it. Mm-hmm. But what, what should they do to even get started? I mean, where can they start? I mean, who can they talk to? Who can they contact? Is there any resor- are there any resources that can help them take the first step? Absolutely, uh, because there are many individuals and institutions who have been at this for a while, and they are more than ready, willing, and able to listen to concerns and questions from any community in the country who would say, how should we do this? There's a number of uh, individuals who immediately come to my mind that I'll I'll give to your listeners. One of them is a gentleman named Dr. Robert Schreiber, and he teaches at Harvard, and he works at Hebrew Senior Life in Boston, and he is a wonderful writer, scholar, presenter. I've had the wonderful opportunities to meet with him recently in the past couple of months. Oh, wow. And always ready and willing to talk about these kinds of questions that you and I are talking about. I also have to mention uh, Dr. Kyle Allen, who is the medical director here uh, within Riverside Center for Excellence in Aging, uh, mm-hmm. who's a writer, scholar, teacher, researcher, uh, known across the country, um, among all these topics, there's another woman who comes to mind whose name is Joanne Lynn, and she heads up the Alterum Institute in Washington, D.C. And then the last person who comes to mind that uh, I wanted to share with you is Dr. Eric Coleman, who teaches at uh, University of Colorado Hospital in Aurora, uh, Colorado. So any and all of those individuals um, more than ready uh, to help any community who's contemplating what they ought to do. Well, there you have it, listeners. You've got uh, several individuals that you can Google them and find out more information and perhaps contact them to at least start to look at what needs to be done and and the the journey ahead and and where we need to start because whether we want it to happen or not, it's going to happen and our society is going to age and we have got to do more to be prepared for that. 
Juanita, I would say uh, for your listeners who who want to know more about these folks, if you can go on our website, www.excellenceinaging.org, you have a way to reach out to me and ask me for more specific ways to contact those individuals, and I'll be happy to give it to you. Awesome. And we're going to give that information out too um, in the last segment because we definitely want people to be to have you know some place that they can follow up to, to follow up with you to get additional information um, to learn a little bit more about you know some of the things that your organization has done. I think is going to be extremely helpful. Now. We talk a lot about um, the when we talk about the elderly population, elderly parents and relatives, but there's got to be there are people who take care of them all the time. I know myself, you know, I've been a caregiver and have had to take care of aging parents. So can you speak now to the listener that's listening to this conversation and thinking, well, you know, I'm I'm doing it. I'm juggling it. I have got kids um, on one hand, and I've got you know elderly parents on the other hand, and you know, and I'm part of that sandwich generation, and I'm just kind of juggling a lot of things. And I'm the caregiver, and what's out there for me? Because I need help. The caregivers are so important, and they render billions of dollars of unpaid care in our country today. And our country's healthcare infrastructure would collapse without them. Uh, Juanita, what you and I know so many times is that we look at an older couple and we see one individual who is frail and vulnerable and we see another who's caring for them. And if we don't care for that caregiver, mm-hmm. and instead of having two folks in the home, in the community, mm-hmm. you're going to have two folks in a facility. Mm-hmm. So you have to care for that caregiver. I think one of the greatest uh, sources of wisdom and expertise in caregiving in this country is at the Rosalind Carter Institute uh, mm-hmm. in America's Georgia. And the ex-First Lady, Rosalind Carter, has a quote that goes like this. There's four kinds of people in the world. There's those who have been caregivers. There are those who are currently caregivers. Those who will be caregivers. Those who will need caregivers. When you think about that, you realize that touches each and each and every one of us. We will all need exactly. one or be one or both at yeah. some point in our life. And so we have to contemplate what it is we're doing for caregivers. One of the other things I would, I would direct you to is um, there is a book. Um, it's called Helping an Aging Loved One, written by Joe Horn. And in that book, there's something that we call the Caregiver's Bill of Rights. You know, Thomas Jefferson gave us (laughs) the Bill of Rights for our country, but there's a Caregiver's Bill of Rights. And in this Bill of Rights, the caregiver is asked to take care of themselves and not see that as an act of selfishness, but understand that to the extent they take care of themselves, they'll be there for their loved one. To the extent they don't, they will not. That is so profound. It is, and it asks caregivers to uh, seek out help from friends and relatives instead of doing it all by themselves. You know, one of the greatest examples of that, uh, one of it is when you get on a plane and you're listening to the stewardess, she'll say if you're sitting with a child or an older adult mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. lose pressure and the mask comes down from the ceiling, put your mask on first. 
Mm-hmm. And that's yes. the moral of the story. You have to put your mask on first and care for yourself or you won't be there for the other one. And caregivers typically don't think that way. They're selfless and they're yeah. only concerned about helping others. Well, and, you know, there's so much guilt. It's almost felt like, you know, you should do it yourself. And, you know, if you're, you're not doing enough if you ask for someone else to help you, that they might view you as being lazy or not wanting to, to do it. And that is just not the case. No, it's not. And, but it's, I'm always struck uh, when we do caregiver support groups, and we do a lot of them here, Mm-hmm. I'm always struck by the people who sit around the table and, and don't realize that there's a lot of folks in similar situations with them. They don't feel mm-hmm. support. They don't reach mm-hmm. out. They don't yeah. think about putting themselves uh, first. They do, you do have right. to put yourself first. Yeah. And so when you relay this information to them, they're struck and amazed by it. And I'm mm-hmm. always amazed by that. Yeah. Um, we're really lucky to have a uh, professor here by the name of Christy Jensen, and Christy yeah. Jensen's life work is teaching uh, how caregivers can care for themselves and how we can care for caregivers. And Christy Jensen is available on our, on our website as well. So I always say to people, when you're thinking about caregiving, look at the Rosalind Carter Institute. You can Google that in America's Georgia. And also look at what we do here. And there's a wealth of information about how we do a better job of supporting caregivers, and we must. Well, I know um, that um, Christy, Dr. Jensen, has received um, recognition for the work that she's done on caregiving. She has. She yeah, but, mm-hmm. has reached the point where she's a national spokesman. She's been awarded. Wow. Uh, she's the only master trainer for the Rosalind Carter Institute in Caregiving who isn't in Georgia. Wow. All of them are in Georgia. Christy's the only one outside of Georgia who's a master trainer. And, oh, my uh, goodness. We're so fortunate. Uh, and lucky to have her, and um, uh, she just does wonderful things uh, here and across the region and across the state. And you know, and that's one of the reasons that I wanted to do this show because I think there's so much that other communities can learn from the model that you have built, that you've already built, is that rather than reinvent the wheel, is that there are resources out there and centers of excellence such as yours, where, you know, we can, we can learn from. And it will save so much time and so much resources. And if we can begin sharing more of this and getting the information out to especially communities that are not as connected and who may just, you know, they just may be out there thinking, you know, what are we supposed to do? You know, um, we just don't have the resources. We don't have the expertise. Um, and the experts really to to be able to to give us that information and guide us through it. So I think this connection is going to be really, really helpful for those communities. Thank you. That's our greatest desire is that you don't recreate the wheel, (laughs) but that you look to us and others who can share with you what we've learned. So now if, you know, Provided we all live long enough, you know, each of us are going to be faced with situations of aging. And some of it is about understanding and, you know, more wisdom as to what we ourselves can do to help ourselves. And certainly we need caregivers, but as we begin to age, what are some of the things that we as individuals need to keep in mind to promote lifelong health? You know, I mentioned Robert Schreiber of Harvard a while ago, and Dr. Schreiber talks about uh, 
the predeterminants of quality of life as we age. And he has a pie chart that he shows when, when he speaks. And mm-hmm. I'm always shocked when I'm reminded that what he shows on that chart is that our genes and our biology only account for about 10% of our quality of life. That our physical environment and our clinical care really only accounts for about 20% of the quality of our life. So listen to this. Our health behavior accounts for clearly 30% of the kind of quality of life we can expect as we age. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, we mean smoking. We mean Mm -hmm. alcohol and drug abuse. We mean our exercise and our diet. Mm -hmm. We mean going to primary care and having uh, diagnostic evaluations conducted and recommendations made and following those recommendations. The remaining 40% of whether or not we have a quality life as we age is social and economic factors. So where do you live? Can you afford mm-hmm. safe housing? Can you afford transportation? Can you afford your medications? And then this one, Juanita, do you have meaning and purpose in your life? Oh. You know, as mm-hmm. we retire from our crazy work-a-day world, mm-hmm. do we go home and sit down and turn on the mm-hmm. television? Or do we go, wait a minute, there has to be more than this. I need to be involved in outreach and ministry. I need to be involved in my children and grandchildren's lives. So it really is about our behaviors, our diet, our exercise, and about meaning and purpose that we find in our lives. Those are the things the experts say will prolong our lives, but maybe more importantly, prolong the quality of our lives. Wow, that is so very, very, very powerful. Amazing. You know, I just... um I was at a conference a couple of months ago, and I was listening to some of the um, speakers from the Department of Health and Human Services. And one of the the speakers actually said that when we talk about communities, and this is just, you know, it it sort of hits you up on the head because, you know, this is the reality, is that, you know, in some communities, and she gave the example of Baltimore, for example, where you live, where you live, your zip code um, really determines your life expectancy. Is that there is just in a few miles a 30 year difference in life expectancy just based on the zip code? Wow, that's and, very and disturbing. That is, it is very disturbing because it should not be that way um, no. in this country where you can have that kind of disparity just based on your zip code. So there's so many things that communities have to, to take into consideration. But I love the, the, the thought about the purpose, too, because you are so right is that many people retire, and when they retire from the jobs, um, they really don't have something else to do. I mean, their goal was to work very hard and to retire and, and sort of sit back, but then what? And, and sometimes, you know, we find that with nothing else to do, they kind of give up on life. I couldn't agree more. And I say to people, as you are contemplating retirement, give it a lot of thought uh, about what's going to fill your life with meaning and purpose and mm. reward when you finally, you know, Take your watch and uh, and get your party as you leave your office and, mm-hmm. and 
And Juanita, I see extremes of both. I see many people who retire and they remain very active on boards. Mm-hmm. They deliver meals on wheels. They help older adults do tax returns. They, some of them tell me they're busier now than when they worked. Right. Juanita, I see the opposite as well. I see people go right. home and sit. Yeah. And let me tell you something, their health uh, deteriorates pretty rapidly if mm. you go home and sit. That is very interesting. It really is. That's really something to think about. Now, with this age wave, bringing us 85 million Americans, 65 or older, that's coming down the pipe soon, what are the biggest challenges right now facing our system and our healthcare delivery and just how we manage um, our, our, our system, our communities, and our health? Well, so much of it obviously is focused on what you you and I have talked about already, you know, our healthcare system and how shall it deliver services and how how are we going to pay for them and how are we going to measure the effectiveness. And I mentioned that we're moving away from a traditional fee-for-service to something that looks more like population health management, accountable care. Mm -hmm. Um, The Affordable Health Care Act that was brought into existence by President Mm -hmm. Obama in 2009 Mm -hmm. has been moving us in that direction. Mm -hmm. But I want to say for your listeners that this thing that I'm describing is really not about partisan politics. It really is about where we have to go regardless of the political discussion. So the Affordable Health Care became a catalyst, became a way for us to consider and other ways how to provide that health care, and we're moving. Some of the experts that I speak to tell me that they believe within the next three years or by uh, you know, 2019 that we will, have made, we will have completed that journey, that we will have moved from fee-for-service to wow, uh, really? population health management. And, and doing that, um, if we do it well, Dollars can be saved that can yes. sustain how we provide health care, I think, for the long term. One of the things, though, Juanita, that is incumbent with that is that we as older adults accept responsibility and accountability for our health. And so, mm-hmm. Rick, you might say to me, Rick, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is is that we monitor our diet, we exercise, we do all these things that we talked about, spirituality. Mm-hmm. We look at our chronic conditions like arthritis and diabetes and, and that we get diagnostics, prescriptions, recommendations, and we follow them. So even though we're going to change the way we deliver it and pay for it, we're also looking to the population to take more accountability and responsibility for their health and mm-hmm. not rely only on physicians Right. to, in fact, make these changes. It really is about us. It's a more holistic approach, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So I think those are the big challenges. And I'll, I also think they're unavoidable. I don't believe we can go backwards and um, how we've done it before. I think this is where we're headed, and I think we have to embrace it and, and accept it. Wow. 
That's powerful. So I know Virginia has um, probably taken uh, quite a few steps to move in that direction to prepare for the age wave that we're going to see. Can you talk about some of the innovative steps that we've um, that have been taken in the state of Virginia and across the country, as far as that goes, um, about uh, to, to to prepare? Well, Virginia, like many states. Um, from the statewide perspective, has been looking at these things that, that we're talking about, and they're uh, moving to help healthcare systems across the state get ready for this. Mm -hmm. One of the things mm -hmm. that we've looked at is um, how we transition individuals from hospitals back home. Mm -hmm. In the old days, you go into a hospital, you have a procedure, and somebody hands you a set of discharge instructions mm -hmm. and you walk out the door and if you're very fortunate you might understand them and what we know about transitions from the old model is that it doesn't work In the new model a case manager will be signed to you so that on the, your last day in the hospital they'll sit down and go over those discharge transition instructions with you and they'll make sure that you understand them but more importantly you have the means and wherewithal to implement them. Right. And that means transportation, and it means food, and it means housing, and it means mm -hmm. prescriptions, it means all those things that you, the determinants, the 40% of social determinants of health care. And so the state of Virginia has been very active and involved in that. They got uh, dollars from Medicare, and we formed something called the Eastern Virginia Care Transition Partnership. Mm -hmm. And so we've been assigning case managers to hospitals all across the state to do exactly what, what I just said. We also are looking at Dr. Shriver's uh, suggestions about managing chronic diseases. And so we offer chronic disease self-management classes that was created by Stanford University in the mid-90s. And these classes meet once a week for six weeks for two and a half hours, and we help patients understand what it is they can do to manage their diabetes, their asthma, their congestive mm -hmm. heart failure, their arthritis. And so I would say that, I would say that we're well on our way in Virginia uh, and that many other states are doing what we're doing. Wow, that is, that, that, that's exactly what needs to happen. I mean, because without that, patients leave the hospital, they go home, and then they end up sometimes being readmitted into the hospital because of complications or things or, you know, noncompliance or things that happen, um, but sometimes not even realizing it because they have not been thoroughly case managed and really um, the care supported, that transition actually supported. So I think that is so on point. Um, I'm so happy to hear that that's happening. Well, that's a good start. That's it is a good, a good start. And the Affordable Health Care Act, by the way, was the author of that. It has regulations that penalize hospitals significantly. Mm -hmm. If you discharge a patient to their home and they return to you in the next 30 days. Yes. yes. So there's not only compassionate clinical, but there's financial incentives mm -hmm. to not have that occur. And mm -hmm. so I think we're doing much better. I know we're doing much better at it. It can be demonstrated in research studies that we're doing much better at that than we did even six or seven years ago. Wow, so things are really, really changing rapidly, but 
You know, um, some communities are much further ahead than other communities, um, but we've still got a ways to go. So, you know, so basically we're trying to keep uh, people as much as possible out of facilities and allow them to age in their homes, right? Yes. 97% of all of us have said repeatedly in focus groups and surveys that we want to spend all of our lives in our home Mm -hmm. where we Mm -hmm. raised our children. And we don't want to be in facility-based care. No offense to facility-based care, but we simply don't want to be there. So then the question becomes, as we age, how how can that be uh, enabled and empowered and how can that dream be achieved? And it often, you know, boils down to these things we've been talking about, that we care for ourselves in the way that we ought to, but also that we can find home and community-based services to assist us. For most of us, as we observe our parents, there reaches a point where they need someone to come in and make a meal, sweep a carpet, do the laundry. They need Mm -hmm. someone to come in and cut the grass. One of the things that's really uh, disturbing to me, Juanita, is that those very things that older adults need to remain at home, they're not covered by any insurance. They're not covered by Medicare, Medicaid, or any private. So you have to anticipate and save for that Mm -hmm. uh, in order to make that uh, a reality. And, you know, and it's just so unfortunate is that, you know, when we look at um, the system, the way the system is set up now, the amount of money that we actually are going to spend when we put individuals in and facilities, the um, you know, that's going to be paid for. Um, mm-hmm. Many times when people can't afford it themselves, it's going to be paid for by um, programs, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, Medicaid. And then, um, but, you know, what we could take care of them in their home sometimes for so much less, but then it's not covered, like you said, by the insurance. Just to make your point, (laughs) if an individual has to go into long-term nursing care, Mm -hmm. uh, and let's pretend that, you know, Medicaid is paying for it, we're talking $7,000 to $9,000 a month per individual. (gasps) Is that what it is? Oh, my goodness. And let's go to my earlier example. Let's pretend that you have an older adult living at home and you can get someone to come in and sweep the carpet, prepare a couple of meals, put the meds in a box, wash the clothes. You're basically talking about 80 bucks a day. Typically, those individuals will come in for for four hours minimum, and they'll charge you $20 or so an hour. So think to your point. Think about how much more how much more cost effective it is to provide in-home personal care services for that individual than put them in a long-term care nursing home where they or we as taxpayers are going to pay seven to nine thousand dollars a month. And this is the whole sustainability question. Yes, we talked about yes, earlier. you're yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Uh- it's, it's a perfect point. There you go. There you go. Look, this has been so incredibly exciting just to, to hear a lot of good information about where we're going, what, what's happening now, new trends, um, but basically some things that are, are slowly um, happening to sort of turn, um, you know, that, that we're starting to pay attention and we're starting to make changes in many states, and I'm sure that there are quite a few states out there that are looking 
at making those kinds of changes, but we know that we've still got a long ways to go. But it really starts with us too and, you know, and how we live our lives and how we become more um, connected and conscious and aware and, 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 and live on purpose. There's so many things that can, can happen. So why don't you tell the listening audience how they can reach you and then we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and we'll, we'll, finish, we'll finish up. Yes. Well, we can be reached. We are the Riverside Center for Excellence in Aging and Lifelong Health. And you can call me, and I'll gladly take your call, at (laughs) area code 757-220-4751, 757-220-4751. Or you can go to our our website, which is www.excellenceinaging.org. Excellence in Aging is all one word, .org. And when you go on there, you'll see much of what I've been talking about in great detail mm. about what it is we're doing now and where we hope to go. Excellent. So listeners, you've been tuned in to the Common Good Show with Juanita Farrell, and I've been talking to Rick Jackson, who is an expert on aging and lifelong health, and we have a lot of good information um, and resources and, and tools that we can begin to put in our toolbox to look at what we can do individually in our own lives, but also to look at what our communities can start doing and the the contacts that they can make to start um, becoming more um, astute and and becoming more on board with uh, changing things in those communities, making sure that we have systems in place and and resources in place to... um, to support our aging population because the tidal wave is coming. It's coming soon. So we're going to take a short break and then we are going to be right back. We're back. You're listening to The Common Good Show with Juanita Farrow and I have with me Rick Jackson and we've been talking about healthy communities, aging and lifelong health. Welcome back, Rick. Thanks, Juanita. And so now, Rick, talk to us about the average person who's listening out there and has been listening to this show going, this is really some good information. Talk to that listener and, you know, and, and help them to understand what they can do um, in terms of advocacy, in terms of you know, just their awareness and, and moving forward or helping the community. What can we all do? Well, I think we all know unfortunately, from uh, all that surrounds us, that we're in a presidential election year. And and I would have to say in my life, this is maybe one of the most important presidential elections we've ever witnessed. There's also mm-hmm. Senate and House uh, seats mm-hmm. open. Sure. So I would advise all of your listeners to become very, very familiar with what all of the candidates, not just the presidential, but Senate and House candidates say about Medicare. What Mm -hmm. do they say about Social Security? What do they say about infrastructure? You know, mass transportation, livable communities, you know, what's coming out of their mouths that you can ascertain? And, um, but I would also say that as important as that is, um, I would say many, many very important decisions are made at local levels mm-hmm. uh, in cities and towns, city councils, state governments. So I would say that you ought to pay attention as well to what uh, all those candidates are saying about serving older adults. 
and that we should hold them accountable. You know, they're going to make certain promises to us. We're going to vote for them based on those promises, and when it's all over, we should hold them accountable by reading the paper and communicating with them by phone and by Internet to say, you know, I voted for you because you mentioned your support for Medicare or Social Security, the Affordable Health Care Act, and, uh, you know, I'm expecting you to deliver on that promise. But the other part of it, though, is what we ourselves would do. You know, mm-hmm. President Kennedy many years ago asked us what we would do for our country, not what our country would do for us. So I would, I would suggest that we have to volunteer in our churches. We have to volunteer mm-hmm. in our area agency on aging. We have to deliver meals on wheels. We have to provide counseling. We have to uh, prepare taxes for older adults who need that help. We. All of us have something we can give, something of value, Mm -hmm. something that's wonderful. And if we look within ourselves and if we look for opportunities, I have always found that those opportunities will come to us if we are serious about it. And when you do that, you not only help the community, but you really help yourself even more. Uh, Because now you have that meaning and purpose. Now you have the reason in your retirement years to get up with a zeal and a wonderful attitude. So I would say it's, it's holding our society and our officials accountable and holding ourselves accountable. You know, what, what shall we do uh, to improve the lives of older adults and caregivers? And so it's a thing we have to get up every morning, and I do it, and look in the mirror and ask myself, mm-hmm. how well am I doing at this? You know? And uh, so that, that's what I would say about our part in all of this. Excellent. So now tell the listeners how they can reach you again, because I know that the phones have been ringing and people are asking questions, and it's so exciting because, you know, we just don't have the conversation enough. It's almost like if we don't talk about it, it's going to go away, but there's some caregiver out there that's struggling and, you know, is trying to find um, some type of health and, and, and make sense of everything that they're going through that they really don't have a lot of support and help, but realize that there is support out there. We just need to be more connected. And so give your information to the listeners so that they can follow up with you and um, use that, those resources to be of help. Yes, Juanita, and thank you so much for that opportunity because all of my career what I've seen are people who are suffering, who are in need of services, and individuals like us who like to provide them. And what we need is that bridge between the Mm -hmm. two, and Mm -hmm. the bridge is communication. And so you've helped us do that today. So those of you who are curious about how your communities might more resemble what we've tried to do here, you know, go on to our website, www.excellenceinaging.org, or feel free to call me at 757-220-4751, and I'd be very happy to hear where you want to go and how we might help you. Thank you so much, Rick. This has been so very exciting, and I'm so, so, so happy that we were able to do this, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to to do the show, and congratulations again on your appointment by the Governor of Virginia, uh, Governor Terry McAuliffe, to the Alzheimer's Disease and Related Disorder Commission to a four-year term. We are really excited and happy for you and for all the work that you're doing to really promote lifelong health for um, our elderly. Thank you, Juanita, and thank you for what you're doing. It was our pleasure, I assure you. 
All right. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Common Good Show with Juanita Farrow. Until next time.